More and more, authoritarian leaders like Bashar al-Assad are taking advantage of great power competition to violate human rights. Natasha Hall, senior fellow at the CSIS Middle East program, explains more. In 2013, U.S. intelligence concluded that President Bashar al-Assad's government launched a sarin gas attack of his own people in Syria. In response, President Obama asked Congress for permission to strike Syria. Before Congress had a chance to vote, though, Russia offered to work with the United States and Syria to destroy the Syrian regime's chemical weapons stockpiles. Most governments saw this as a diplomatic breakthrough. Syrians, though, I think saw this as an inflection point, and the world should have seen one, too. Assad realized that no one was coming to protect Syrian civilians. His regime proceeded to annihilate every human right and humanitarian norm, and it has continued to do so. It's estimated that the regime has killed half a million people, forcibly displaced over 100,000 people, and tortured another 500,000, and used chemical weapons in over 350 attacks. Unfortunately, tragic human rights abuses are not a new phenomenon. You're right. World leaders have violated human rights norms in the past. During the Cold War, the United States and the Soviet Union were more concerned about competing with each other than supporting a world order based on human rights, obviously. Something similar is happening today. As rising global powers compete for power in a multipolar world, they risk returning to ruthless geopolitical tactics that often harm civilians. So how did human rights norms improve after the Cold War? Did the fall of the Soviet Union help at all? It wasn't necessarily the fall of the USSR itself that promoted human rights norms. Instead, the sudden disintegration of a superpower rivalry allowed democracies, human rights principles, and humanitarian law to experience a brief resurgence in the 1990s. And during that period, the percentage of electoral democracies versus the number of closed autocracies increased. In 1993, 130 countries signed the Chemical Weapons Convention, just a few years after the United States had turned a blind eye to Iraq's extensive use of chemical weapons in its long war with Iran. Regional organizations further advanced civilian protection mechanisms. In 2009, the African Union broke ground with the Kampala Convention, the first ever treaty obliging governments to protect the rights of internally displaced people. I see. So how did Assad reverse the development of these human rights norms globally, not just in Syria? Well, first, the steady stream of refugees fleeing violence in Syria caused once welcoming European governments to lift the drawbridge and make deals with increasingly autocratic states to stop refugees and migrants from entering Europe. And second, other authoritarian actors took note of Assad's survival and his impunity. In an increasingly multipolar world, a growing number of leaders are trying to do what Assad did. They can obliterate local adversaries while relying on a major power to provide support and protection. And we've already seen the results of this. Between 2016 and 2021, the number of countries moving toward authoritarianism was twice that of those that were moving towards democracy. And fueled by external sponsorship, more than 50 civil wars are raging across the world today. That's almost 50% more than in 2001. Two billion people, a quarter of the global population, now live in conflict-affected areas. It's clear that despite the quote-unquote civil characterization of these conflicts and crackdowns, these crises don't actually remain internal or even regional. Exactly. International actors invariably intervene. 
persecuted populations emigrate, and authoritarian tactics spread. Nearly all civil conflicts in the world today are internationalized. In Syria, for example, 12 countries are currently involved in the country's so-called civil war. And some of these countries have intervened directly, exported weapons, or protected war criminals. Even less direct stakeholders like China have played a part. Nearly half of China's vetoes at the UN Security Council have been in concert with Russia to protect the Syrian regime. And Western countries are also at fault. They have often sought to strike elite bargains, sometimes with war criminals, to stop bloodshed. These settlements make it difficult to hold leaders accountable for human rights violations. And when there is no peace settlement, Western countries resort to humanitarian crisis management, which helps address short-term issues like migration. But it doesn't stop long-term violence and instability in places like Sudan or in Syria. Given these issues, what can the United States do to effectively support a human rights-based global order? It's in the United States' interest to support human rights in an era of great power competition. U.S. rivals like Russia gain from supporting regimes that use violence to stay in power. They exploit these weak regimes to expand their access to ports, military bases, and natural resources. And endless conflicts distract democracies from addressing other geopolitical challenges. When the United States fails to uphold human rights during these crises, Chinese and Russian diplomats and media outlets use the opportunity to also criticize U.S. hypocrisy. Just look at how the United States has been criticized during Israel's violent escalation in Gaza. At the end of the day, liberal democracies can develop a concerted effort to uphold human rights norms, but it will require thoughtful and inclusive planning. If states fail to see the protection of human rights as a strategic imperative, these precious norms will likely be overwhelmed by great power competition, and the resulting crises will weaken U.S. interests and international peace and security.